Hey, good morning. Hey, if you're new, I'm Charlie, the lead pastor here, and really glad you are worshiping with us today. And we are just started last week a new series called Reconstruction, where we're kind of talking about people who have, you know, we use this phrase gets used a lot, deconstructed their faith. <clears throat> In the process, we kind of defined this term or tried to a little bit. Maybe it's the first time you've heard it. Maybe it wasn't. And it's and it's in its truest sense, it's kind of a it's kind of a nerd word where it really has more to do with do words have fixed meanings over time and how does that help us understand ancient, especially religious types of documents, which is not what we're talking about. But it's kind of become more of this idea around people who grew up with a faith and and it has been challenged or had has been hurt or you know kind of damaged in some way and people begin to deconstruct and when we were talking about it last week there's a there's another type of deconstruction that I didn't talk about and I want to make sure to kind of give some 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 thoughts and some validity to that which is really more of an institutional deconstruction <coughs> where somebody <coughs> based on their experience with the church the church as a as an entity or an individual church because of the church's failures in the past or in the present, it is feels like such a corrupt or useless institution that in some ways it just needs to be redone, dismantled, or maybe just blown up and, and start over. And usually these are around like incredibly weighty issues around like the church's historical response to racism or its current response to racial equity or, and as this is probably the most prevalent current example of it, there's a denomination right now that is really battling both internal and external critics about the way that it has handled sexual misconduct accusations against its pastors historically. You know, discovering of a lot of you know, non-disclosure agreements and keeping things hush-hush and Instead of telling people what's going on, you just take the pastor, move him to another town and not hope nobody figures it out. And all of this is starting to come to light. And so the, there's this battle about whether or not, you know, we should, is this worth saving or should we just, just blow it up and start over? So maybe with an individual church or a group of churches, a denomination, or maybe the church at large and people just feel this kind of strong desire to get into kind of deconstruct the institution of church. And, and, and I totally understand um, that sort of perspective. Like when you, when you have been hurt or damaged, um, disappointed in a severe way by something that is supposed to be bringing hope and life to the world, I understand why people are responding that way. And I think probably there's some people who probably wish that not only in this series but maybe just big picture that I gave more thought, energy to that idea. But I just want to say, that's just, kind of, that's just not currently what we're talking about. And so I want to make sure, because you may hear this word or you may experience this word or idea differently. That's just not currently what we're talking about. And to the degree that we are, people who are experiencing that kind of deeper next level frustration with God's church, what we're talking about are the people then who, for whatever reason... You take it one step further, and it's not my problem with the church or people in the church, but it begins to erode at the core of what I genuinely believe about God, about me, about Jesus. And so it, it's the point in which my, my internal battles that I'm having, the external problems that I see with the church, or maybe just some 
Maybe it was, again, it was, maybe it was a more personal experience. Something I was taught to believe turns out like to be demonstratively false. And now I'm like, what else did the church teach me that's false? I mean, we, we can all come to these places different ways. But what we're talking about here is when whatever the issue is, it's not just I'm frustrated with the church. It goes to the next place too. It's like, and so therefore, I'm not really sure what I believe anymore. And so we started last week saying, if, 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 if any of us have been in that place or are in that place, or maybe we're not there yet, but I can, maybe I can see it from where I am as I think about my heart. What do we, what do we rebuild? What do we need? Like, what, what are the foundational truths? It's like, I'm not going to let my frustrations with anyone else keep me from really, truly believing and worshiping and following the capital G God of the universe and, 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 a, and an adoration and worship and appreciation of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm not going to let that happen. How do, what are the foundational planks that we need to rebuild with? And we started last week with what I think is a very simple, but very often neglected or undersold principle. And I think it is the most crucial. And it is this, that God is good and he loves you. God is good. There is a good God who created this universe and this God is good and he loves you personally. We went all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter one. And we talked about it <coughs> in terms of kind of the original audience that the book of Genesis was written for, which are the people coming out of um, slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. These people had been slaves for generations, and I'm sure that their faith and their understanding of who God is because of the oppression that they had felt and the, and the pain uh, just for generations... They weren't sure who God was and weren't sure how God felt about them. And God comes and rescues them and essentially he's reintroducing himself to them. I know that you're discouraged. I know that your faith has been rattled. And so here's what I want you to know about me first. Genesis chapter one, I'm the creator. I'm the good God. Everything he created was good. He brings order to chaos. He feels, fills emptiness. He brings life where there is only death and, 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 and where, where, where he brings life to emptiness, right? He, he does all this and he says, and then he creates, and then he creates people. And it's like, I created you in my image. And essentially he says that basically this world is his gift to us. This is what he wants them to understand, that he loves them personally and is a good and faithful God. But there's a question that I think kind of come, came up probably in your minds as we we're talking about it last week, or if you weren't there, you're thinking it now, and certainly would have been in the minds of the Israelites. You're, like, you're seeing this, man, God is good, and the creation that he created was good, and everything is good, and he loves you. And you're like, man, when you've experienced generational torture and been slaves for so long, you're like, man, the way you're describing the world, I don't know about. You can say God is good, but I feel that there's evidence to the contrary. And people, people feel that. And so the story actually continues. And what we're going to do is kind of pick up on that a little bit. But what this is going to feel like, I feel like I need to give this disclaimer. What this is going to feel like is kind of the middle act in a play or like the middle movie in a trilogy 
where it's kind of like, if, in the first one, it's like, oh man, everything's good and this is so cool and this universe is cool. And then something really bad happens in the middle and then the movie's over and you feel bad. Like, I'm trying to think of, like, I'm a, I'm, I like a lot of pop culture stuff, but I don't, I, I don't want to spoil anything by, by using some example that's too current because one time I used a book that was 20 years old and somebody got offended because they, they were just reading the book. It's 20 years old. So I'm going to go with a movie that is in fact 43 years old, and if it gets spoiled, that's on you, which is the middle act of the original Star Wars trilogy, Empire Strikes Back. So if you do not know that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's dad, that's on you. It's a 43-year-old movie, okay? Now, <coughs> so imagine eight-year-old Charlie Lofton loved Star Wars at six. Saw, saw Star Wars only six. Now he's eight. And he sees Empire Strikes Back. And, 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 and all of a sudden at the end, the bad guy, the baddest bad guy you have ever seen in anything, is he really the hero's dad? And the hero, and the hero lost his hand. And the other hero is frozen in this carbonite and they're sending him to a gangster. And I, I, like you get the end, you're like, I think they lost. And it is three years before the next movie comes out. No internet, no rumor sites to go to, just pain and uncertainty. And you just feel, you feel it. And someone came to me after the first episode, he's like, actually, I thought Empire Strikes Back was a great movie. I am saying it was a great movie. I'm saying it was troubling to an eight-year-old to kind of feel unsettled. This is going to a little bit feel like this. God is good, and this is who this God is, and this, I want you to think about it. But something has gone really, really wrong. And I promise we are gonna, we're going to resolve this fully next week, or at least attempt to. But we may leave ourselves here. There's some things we're talking about that are going to make us feel a little bit unsettled. Because <coughs> God is good and he loves you. But the middle piece of this that we need to understand is that we broke the world. We broke the world. And there's different, there's, there's some, a lot of intentionality behind the words that I use, especially around the word we, which we'll come back to at the end. But our choices, our sinfulness, the things that we did, we have broken the world. The way that we interact with God, the way that we interact with one another, the things that we do to ourselves, the things that we do to each other, we have broken this world. And now, I was thinking about this, like, just even just, even just, even just at first saying of it, right? That, um... You go to a lot of other churches, talk to a lot of other people, like the way, the way that they'll say this is going to be a lot stronger. They're going to say a lot stronger. It's like, you know what the problem is? The problem is your sin and you are a sinner and the corrupting influence of sin in your life and all of our lives has brought death and destruction to this world. Okay? Now, I'm going to tell you, there isn't anything that I disagree with about what I just said. I, I agree with that conceptually. I just don't feel the need in this moment that we live in to come at you that hard. Because I think that sort of talk and kind of the strong emphasis on it and a lot of just kind of it feeling more accusatory, I think it is birthed out of a time, time maybe when I grew up, when there was a wide range of people that genuinely believed that people are basically good and if we all just put our heads together and decided to be good, we can, we, 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 can, we can make it all good. Like, we're just, come on, guys, if we just, if we just try hard enough, we can, we can, it'll all be fine. 
And so pastors, evangelists, Christians felt this need to kind of very strongly say, no, no, people are evil, people are sinful, people are corrupt, and that's the problem. When I don't think, fast forward to where we live today, I do not think it is a difficult sell for me to just stand here very calmly and say, hey, guess what? The sin, the things that we've done, the wrong that we've done, it has broken this world. The problem in this world is, is us. We, we did this. The world is broken. Yeah, it is. And guess who did it? We did it. And I don't feel the need to oversell it because I think in the overselling is the unintentional, or maybe in some cases, not my, the, the, the unintentional consequence of, of bringing a lot of shame to the situation. I don't, about it. I don't want us to feel shame, but I do want us to have a, a realistic understanding of what's wrong. And I, and I want us to shift our blame and concern and frustration about the world from God to us. And again, we're going to talk about this a little bit more at the end. Shifting the blame from God to us and from them to us. That it is all of us collectively that have ended us here in this place. And so we're going to pick up the story right where we left off. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2 because, again, I think it is important because God is trying to communicate to his people as he's taking them out of Egypt to his promised land to help them understand kind of the world around them and why their experience of this is not this kind of pure joy of, and, and goodness that Adam had in Genesis chapter 1. So the first part of Genesis uh, chapter 2, we kind of got the, you know, he's you know, we're specifically talking about how he created Adam. Puts him in the garden and says this to him in Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So he places him in this garden, this beautiful good world that he's put him in. He puts him right here. And he says, hey, listen, everything that you see is yours. You can eat from anything that you want. This is all yours. It's my gift to you. I want you to take care of it. The only thing is I don't want you to eat from this one tree. So he gives him this, he gives him this boundary. And this is the, the situation that he's in. So now the story continues. And God creates Eve, a, 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 a partner for Adam, and now this kind of joint responsibility exists for the two of them to kind of care for this garden, to kind of love and enjoy this world that God has given them. And again, one boundary, don't eat from this tree because when you do, something really bad is going to happen. Death is going to enter into the world and you're eventually going to die. And you don't, you don't, I don't want that. I don't want that. So just stay away from this one tree. And um, again, if you, you, don't, you don't have to know this story to know exactly what's going to happen. If I say, hey, I'm going to put two people in a room and tell them, there's only one, tell them there's only one thing you can't do. Like, you know, I mean, you don't have to know what happens in Genesis chapter 3 to know exactly where this is going to go. Because it's exactly where all of our brains immediately go. You can have anything you want in the world, just not this one tree. Right? That's where I'm, I'm, I'm going to live there. I, I, can't, I can't help but think about it, which just kind of shows us kind of where our minds go. And that's kind of where we end up here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it 
or you will die. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now I want to make sure that we catch that because that's like the biggest plot twist in the whole thing. Because we get this picture of this story. If you've heard this story before, and I know there's a weird part and, and, I, and, and I'm just going to gloss over it because it's not the point of what we're trying to get across here. What's this snake? The snake is talking. That's totally weird. Why didn't she think it was weird? I got lots of questions. You got lots of questions. There's only so many questions. Like, there's only so much time. It's a little bit like why I wish we could talk about all the things. Like, like <clears throat> too often. Like I wish we could talk more about kind of the institutional deconstruction stuff. I wish we could talk more about this, talk more about this. But we only have 30 minutes, right? We only have 30 minutes. If you're following along with our supplemental podcast at best, we got an hour a week where we can talk about all this stuff. And I'm telling you, most Sundays I'll look at my wife either before or after the service. I guess what? I did it again. She's like, what? It's like, I had two sermons in my notes. And I got to figure out how to get an hour's worth of stuff. And, And having already preached this once, I need you to know. I did it again. I've got at least a sermon and a half's worth of stuff here that we're going to try to get through here. But anyway, so we're not going to talk about the snake and all that stuff, right? But here's, a, here's, a, here's the interesting thing about this story that I think it's way too much overlooked. We imagine the snake and, and, and Eve having this conversation, right? And we don't know where Adam is, but he was there the whole time. The whole time. Kind of like, all right. We'll see how this, play, we'll see how this plays out. Oh, snake makes a good point. Oh, that's a good point. Well, let's just see. He's standing there the whole time. It says she ate and then gave it to him who was there the whole time. Verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And again, that part about their response, that'll be, we we will pick the story back up right there at that verse next week. Their response, God's response to all of this. But in this point, we need to figure out what happened. So we've got this situation here where God had placed them in this perfect place where there was just this one boundary that they had. Don't do this one thing. And what seems like, certainly in the story, it's immediate. We don't know how long it was, but it feels very quick. They very quickly moved to doing this one thing, the one thing that God had told them not to. How did we get there? And so in this conversation between the serpent and Eve, we get a lot of pictures about how this happened. And I think we get a lot of insight into our own hearts and minds about our own responsibility in this and how it is that we have also contributed to the decay and the brokenness of this world. And what's going on in our heart? Because what it begins here, I believe, in this conversation, the breakdown starts when they begin by questioning the goodness of God. It broke the world in part by questioning the goodness of God. It starts with calling the good God a liar. Did he really say this? He said, we're going to die. He's like, you're not going to die. And so exposing this idea is like, well, you know, I mean, God's not really that good. If he were good, there's actually something new that you'll have that is actually you would want. It will make you a little bit more like God. And there's a good thing. This is actually God denying you a good thing. God is not good. And she begins to think about it. And there's also another really interesting component to this, which is when she's asked, so the the snake, he exaggerates, right? He exaggerates. Did God really tell you you can't eat any of this? 
And she's like, no, 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 it's not all that. He said we can eat from anything in the garden, just not this one tree. You can't eat from that one tree or even touch it or you'll die. Where's that come from? Nobody said that. God didn't say that. I don't know if Adam reported that to her in an exaggeration. I don't know if she's exaggerating in her own mind. I don't know where the exaggeration comes from. But I do know this, that the exaggeration of a command of some sort is really very often the first step towards committing it. Because what you do, once I exaggerate it, and I can exaggerate the command in such a way that it seems ridiculous, then, then it's like, well, what you're saying is in fact ridiculous. I mean, it starts like this. This is kind of how I grew up, right? I grew up like this. It's like, hey, very clear. Sex before you're married is absolutely wrong. Therefore, don't dance. Because in dancing, the parts that are involved in sex get, they're just, it's too close, too close. But then you hear that. You hear the exaggeration and you think, that's ridiculous. Drunkenness is bad, therefore don't drink anything ever under any circumstances. Nothing, you know, don't go to parties. Nothing good happens at parties. Nothing. Nope, nope, no one's having any fun at these parties. Like you say exaggerated things and then you're like, if the exaggerated part's wrong, probably the part that underneath it's wrong. These people don't have any idea what they're talking about. And this is the line of reasoning that the snake uses with Eve. It's what she's parroting back to them. And you begin this kind of slow rationalization. God is not as good or as competent as, we, as, as, as we're supposed to believe that he is. And this is very often the way that our brains think around the things that God is calling you to do, that God is calling you not to do. We begin to make them bigger and more exaggerated what they were in a, in a slow attempt to ultimately discredit God and what he has to say in my life. And then we end up here. If I can question the goodness of God, then I, then I eventually make this connection, which I believe that the boundaries that God gives, that God's boundaries, that they're punishments. God's boundaries are just, they're punishments. He gives, he gives me a boundary and he says, don't do this. I'm trying to protect you. If you do this, it's going to be bad. And I see this fence, metaphorical fence around this thing. It's like, don't do that. And I begin that to begin to think, that's not a fence to protect me. That is a fence to keep me from something good. And if you've been around me for a while, you've heard this, but I keep coming back because I think it is just a very strong metaphor to help us understand this. There are two types There are two types of fences in the world. There are fences that you put around prisons and there are fences that you put in your backyard when you have an an insanely overactive toddler. And we, 20 years ago, had an insane overactive toddler. Her name was Lauren Lofton. She's now grown up into be an awesome, precious, amazing young woman. But at two two years old, she she was scary. She She skipped crawling, skipped walking, went straight to running. And she would, she would put her hands in the air like this. And she would scream like, an, like a wild animal. Ah! And she would run. And she would run until she hit a wall. And she would hit, bang! And she would fall down. And she would stand up and she'd go. And do it again. 
And so this is where we were in seminary in this little small apartment where we could keep her mostly contained. I say mostly contained because you did get out once and that was a very scary moment. But we moved into this house that had this nice backyard but no fence. And right by, and it was on a main road right here. And then right on the other side of where our fence would go, there's this big rock that, you would, that was just perfect for climbing and jumping and screaming. And behind that was a pond. And she couldn't swim, but don't tell her that. She thought she could. And so there was all these dangers. And so the very first thing that we did was put in a fence. We had a place, a playground, a little swing set. You know where we put it? Inside the fence. She had outdoor toys. You know where we put them? Inside the fence. When we brought her food, you know where we put the food? Inside the fence. All of the good things were in the fence. Everything we wanted, everything that was good was inside this fence. And on the other side of that fence were things that might look appealing but were in fact incredibly dangerous. And that is the fence that we put around our backyard for, to love and protect her. And then there's a prison fence. And I'm not making a social commentary about prison or justice or anything. This is just a metaphor, so let's not read too much into it. I'm just saying that the way that prison fences are designed to work is we believe that all the bad things are inside the fence. And we've got to protect the good outside from the bad that's in. Tall fences, barbed wire, you don't get to come out. And that's bad, and the good is out here. Now, when God says, don't do this, when God says, you must do this, do you believe that he is putting a fence around your life that is designed to protect you or to punish you? Are the boundaries and the rules that he puts in your life, are those for your good or for your ill? This is what she says. This is what Eve says. She saw that the fruit of the tree was good, pleasing, desirable. God was preventing me from getting something good that I wanted, that I deserve, that will actually be for my good. And so I am going to take it. I question the integrity and the goodness of God. I begin to misunderstand what his rules are and now suddenly, now I'm another contributor into the brokenness and the hurt and destruction in this world by my own sinfulness. And again, it begins with questioning plank number one. God is good and the boundaries that he wants to put in your life, they're for your protection. But when I, when, I, when I fail and I choose to not believe that he's good and I choose to believe that he's punishing me, we end up in the situation where this is how it started with Adam and Eve and it is a continued moment that has happened with every person, generation to generation now, and now we're all participating in it in a world that is not what it should be. And it is of absolute importance that we understand this. When I say we broke the world, I mean we we did this. We, we did this. We did it. We did it. And I think that is, the, that is the interesting part about the way the story unfolds. Eve takes a bite of the apple and what happens? Nothing happens. Nothing. And she hands it to her husband. He eats it. And then it says, and then both of their eyes were opened and then they felt overwhelming shame. Nothing happened until they both did it. Now, there's a lot of implications that people try to make from that that we won't necessarily get into all of them. 
But I believe one that I believe is very clear is the unity that they had. This was a we decision. It's not one of them. We're not just gonna give Eve a hard time. We're not just gonna give Adam a hard time. This was, this was a collective. We, 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 we did this. But you see in the immediate aftermath of this, and we'll look more at this passage next week. God's like, what happened? And what does Adam say? The woman that you gave me did this to me. He immediately blames her and God. And this is what we do. Why is the world broken? It's because of what they did. You know who they are. It's those people out there. And depending on who you are, your political background, your spiritual background, your personal politics, your, your, your perspective on morality, the they's that have really broken the world, you know, you know who they are. You know what they're doing. You read about them all the time on that new site that you love so much. They're, I mean, they're so corrupting. It's them, they did it. It's not them, it's us. There is no them, there's just us. Or we begin to do like Adam did. It's actually, God, this is your fault and these, this is what we do. God, you did this, really? And we begin to ask questions that I think are really, in their core, have the ability to be really good questions. God, why don't you restrain? Sure, it's broken, but why, why it doesn't have to be this broken. Why don't you restrain evil more? Why put the tree in the garden in the first place? Why even let there be the opportunity for this? God, why did you do all, why, why, why let the snake talk? Keep the snake out of there. There's any number of things, God, you could have done to keep this from happening. God broke the world. Now, those are, some of those questions are really, really good. And if you follow along with kind of our supplemental podcast, I'm gonna address some of those and just spend some time talking about them. I don't know that I can fully resolve that in your heart, we can talk about it. And again, those are good questions, but when we allow our brain to hang out there, that is just another way of doing exactly what Adam did. It's just turning the focus from what we did to what God should have done. And just another part of the cycle, I'm questioning God's goodness. And I'm trying to get myself off the hook by blaming them and blaming God. So I want you to ask those deep level questions. I want you to to hang out there and think about it. But I don't want you to live there. Because ultimately where we need to live is I need to be honest. And if I'm honest about this idea that we broke the world, by the definition of the first person plural pronoun, we means me and you. I did it, you did it. I have a personal culpability in this. I have played a part, I have played a role. I, I am a sinner. And that has implications for me and my own brokenness. It has implications for me and my relationship with God. It has implications for me and my relationship with you. And I, and I, have, to be, I, have, to, I have to be able to be honest about that. And because I can imagine someone who is more of a sinner than me, that doesn't matter. And I could imagine a way that God could have kept this from happening. That doesn't matter. What matters is I did this. And, and I, have to own, I have to own my part of it. And like I said, there's a sense in which this is kind of like ends us at the wrong place with just a lot of, hey, I don't want anybody to walk out of here with any shame. But I do want us to walk out of here with a real clear awareness that I don't, there, there aren't any villains. We don't get to leave here and have any villains. We did this. I am the reason 
why my relationship with God is broken. I'm the reason why my relationships with people are broken. Like, I have a part in this. Again, we, we, we did it, but that also means me. But to give you just a preview, because I, being, uh, you know, this is kind of just my personality. I don't, I don't, leave, I don't want anybody leaving feeling bad. I want to make sure to just give you a little preview. Let's go back to number one. God loves you. And no matter how broken you may seem, no matter how bad may things, maybe no matter how deep of a sinner you think that you are, what the God of the universe who loves you unconditionally, what he did, no matter how bad it was, he looked at it and said, I need to save them. I want to reconcile with them. I want a new relationship with them. This is what motivated Jesus Christ to come. He does not look at this brokenness and just think, well, forget all of them. I don't, uh, I'll just start over somewhere. He looks and, and, and his heart, his love for you is what drew his son, Jesus Christ, to this planet to live for us and to die for us so that we can be reconciled to a good God that loves us. And we will spend all of our time next week kind of talk, talking about that. And so as we are taking some serious time to really contemplate our role in what we did, let us not lose sight of the fact of the grace and the goodness and hope that comes from Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I do pray. I just don't want anybody to feel shame. I don't want anybody to feel overwhelmed. I don't want anybody to feel hopeless. That is the point of the gospel is to bring hope to hopeless, to bring life to death, to bring light to darkness. And God, that's where we started. We started with you giving us a wonderful gift and demonstrating your overwhelming love for us. And then we, then we did it. We broke it. Our sinfulness, individually, collectively, all together. And God, I pray that we'd be able to be honest about that. That because just somebody else one time said it too strong or said it in a way that was hurtful, said it in a way that brought shame, said it in a way that was exaggerated, said whatever our history is. God, I pray that we would not. God, I pray that we would. I pray that we'd be willing to be honest with ourselves and with you about our own culpability, our own sinfulness, our own brokenness. And God, I pray that we would truly believe in the hope and the reconciliation and the redemption and the salvation that comes from your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.